Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who spent a lifetime as a boxing promoter. While he's synonymous with Philadelphia boxing, he also promoted fights in Atlantic City, casinos, and around the country. As a matchmaker, his fights have appeared on all the major networks that carry boxing, ABC, NBC, CBS, ESPN, and USA, as well as the Philadelphia-based Prism. Over half a century in the business, he has crossed paths with the great, the near great, the honest, the shady, the decent, the sneaky, in short, all the excitement and color that capsulizes why Mark and I love boxing and boxers. He's been elected to the World Boxing Hall of Fame, the International Boxing Hall of Fame, only boxing can have competing halls of fame, the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, the Pennsylvania Boxing Hall of Fame, the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame, the Temple University School of Communication Theater Hall of Fame. He recounts his career in fascinating detail in a great new book, $30 and a Cut Eye. So let's give a big Sports Talk New York welcome to the one, the only, J. Russell Peltz. Welcome, Russell. Great to be here, Arnie and Mark. You didn't start out with the plan to become a boxing promoter. You originally wanted to be a journalist and study journalism at Temple University. You actually did get a journalism job at the Philadelphia Bullet. Can you tell our listeners how you ended up as a fight promoter? Well, I started working there um, during my junior year. And um, the boxing writer, I have full time, the boxing writer at the Bullet and Jack Freed had been there since 1928. So I started working at the Bulletin in 1967 and um, hoping one day to be the boxing writer. And um, we never got along, Freed and I, because I guess he saw me as his replacement. Um, I would make uh, corrections in his stories. As I put in the book, even in 1969, he was still referring to Muhammad Ali in print as Cassius Clay. And I would change it and we would get into big fights. And uh, when I got out of basic training in the army and came back, they'd given him an extension on his retirement. And I was 22 and I didn't feel like waiting around for him to die. So um, having worked full time in college, I had about $5,000 saved up and I decided to become a boxing promoter. So guys like Freed could write about me. <laughs> you know, back in the golden days of boxing, it wasn't just about the big fights at places like Madison Square Garden in Vegas. You know, boxing flourished at, at local venues, you know, especially here in Queens as well. Um, you know, and, and they featured local fighters. That's how Jerry Cooney came to Providence. You know, one of those legendary, you know, venues, like I said, Sunnyside Gardens in Queens and Philadelphia. One of those places was the Blue Horizon. This is where you started promoting fights and, and would promote cards there from 1969 well into the 1990s. Can you give a, a description of the Blue Horizon for our listeners and tell us why it was such a great boxing venue for so long? Well, first of all, Mark, before we were married, I took my wife to a fight at Sunnyside Garden. She still married me. <laughs> um, the Blue Horizon was a, a one-time row home in North Philly on Broad Street, one of the main streets in Philly, uh, 
It's built around the time of the Civil War. It became a um, known as Old Moose Hall. They would have conventions, but they had a ballroom on the, well, you'd have to walk up about maybe 15 steps to get in there. That was the first floor where they had a ballroom. But on the second floor, they had an auditorium with a balcony on three sides and a stage on the uh, fourth. And it sat um, for boxing. Well, they had two fights there in 1938. And they didn't have another one until 1961 when I was in high school. And it, um, the balcony was so close to the ring that you could literally jump into the ring and not hurt yourself. Um, it was a very intimidating place for out-of-town fighters. Um, 1,346 seats, and it was about the only place I could afford. And, um, you know, by the, by the end of the 1990s, it was probably before I left there, it was probably the most popular uh, boxing club in the country. Everybody fought there. I had gone there for the first time in high school in 1963 to watch uh, a televised fight between Jose Stable of New York and Dick Turner, who at the time was an undefeated welterweight from Philly. And I sat in the balcony. And uh, the next year, I went with some friends to see what they still consider to be the greatest fight ever there was when future world welterweight champion Curtis Cox, um, after scoring a knockdown in the second round, got knocked out himself in the fourth by Stanley Kitten Hayward. Uh, Don Dunphy was ringside. It was one of the Friday night fights or Saturday night fights, maybe by that time. So your second card at Blue Horizon included a boxer and part-time hairdresser, John Wildcat Sanders. Well, while he may not have been a very good boxer, he did make the comment that gave you the title for your book. Can you fill us in on the story that gave you the quote that became the book's title? And why, among all the quotes of all the boxers you dealt with over the years, did you choose this for the book's title? Well, you know, if you, you read the book, the dedication is dedicated to every fighter who ever strapped on the cup. And I still, to this day, get upset when I hear or see a fan in the audience calling a fighter a bum. Because when you really think about it, forget the fights. When these guys go into the gym five days a week to train, and let's say they just box four rounds a day, three days a week. That's 12 rounds a week. That's 36 minutes. That's 36 minutes they're getting hit in the head. That can't be good for you. Anyway, on my first show, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember the old Friday and Saturday night fights, before the main event, when you turn on the TV, especially from Madison Square Garden or Chicago Stadium, the ring announcer would be in the ring. There'd be no writing on the canvas, no logos, none, none of that stuff. And there'd be about four or five, mostly ex-fighters in ties and jackets getting introduced. Willie Pep, Sandy Sadler, Kid Gavilan, whatever. And occasionally there'd be a guy who's fighting next week, maybe at St. Nick's Arena, Billy Bella. And they'd all get introduced and shake the fighters' hands. Well, I had no control in the early days. And on my first show, a fighter got into the ring. Sanders got into the ring, a part-time hairdresser, wearing a three-piece suit with a tail, a cane, a top hat, and a bow tie. And he got introduced. But nobody said that he'd had four fights and had lost them all. 
So I was running fights every two weeks. And I got a call the next day from his manager who said he wanted to fight for me on my second card. So I went down to the gym in South Philly and went up the steps. I guess all gyms are at the top of some steps. And he was there still wearing the three-piece suit. And I gave him a contract for four rounds for $50, which he thought was an insult. There's a guy who's 0-4 and I'm insulting him with a $50 contract for four rounds. I said, listen, I'm not here to negotiate. So I turned and, and headed back down the steps. And then they called me, no, 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 forget it. We'll take the fight. So he fights on October 14th, 1969. I think the book says I made $133.78 on that card. Um, anyway, he fought a kid named Roland Marshall, and he got cut in the second round. It was a good fight. So they stopped the fight, He got and he lost on a TKO, technical knockout, because of the cut. So at the end of the night, all the fighters are in line waiting to get paid. He's got his three-piece suit on with his um, collar open, no bow tie. He's got beads of sweat, no, no top hat, got a Band-Aid over his left eye, and he comes up to the desk to get his $50. We deducted $10 for his Pennsylvania boxer's license, $8 for his medical insurance. In those days, fighters paid for their own medical insurance, and $1.50 for a city wage tax. So he's left with $30.50. So he comes up and he picks up the pay sheet and he stares at it. it. Seemed like it was for hours, but it was only about 10 or 15 seconds. And then he put it down, he signed the pay sheet, took his money, and he said, $30 and a cut eye. And then he turned and left the building. And ever since that night, I knew that if I were ever to write a book, that would be the title. And that's why I self-published the book, because I went to a few publishers who wanted the book to be more about a Jewish kid from the suburbs who got into the nasty world of professional boxing. And I'm sure they would have asked me to cut out about 20 chapters and they probably wouldn't have liked the title, but um, I'm so happy that I self-published because I became my own editor other than people I used as copy editors, but $30 and a cut eye. I love it. And it catches your attention. So before we get back to some specifics from the book, I'm interested in the research you did. The book is filled with details of each fight card. You write up the attendance, the gate, the size of the profit or loss, I have visions of you pouring through dusty old ledgers that have been in boxes for decades. How did you research the book? And how many hours of video do you estimate you watched? First of all, I'm a saver. I save everything. Posters, programs, videos. I have lists of people and what seats they sat in. I save just about every profit and loss statement, every, everything. So, and they're all, I have a file of every fight I ever promoted. And in that file are all, I have my Marvin Hagler signed contracts, Emil Griffith signed contracts, programs, all that stuff, pay sheets. I must have an incredible autograph collection. So it wasn't as difficult as, I mean, yeah, I had to subscribe to a couple of clipping services because it was easier than me pulling out all my scrapbooks. And I have scrapbooks up the kazoo. And I have an incredible, I do have an a pretty good memory. Um, so I was blessed with that. 
I started writing the book. The pandemic gave me the time to write the book. If it hadn't been for that, I don't know if I'd ever gotten around to it. Uh, I started around March of 20, and I finished in August of 21. And the book went on sale in September the 6th of 21. And um, I just, you know, you know, my father used to say, well, if you studied chemistry as much as you studied the ring record book, you'd be on the dean's list. But, you know, I've been in love with boxing since I was 12. So it, it's the cliche, the labor of love. And it comes through on every single page for sure. Uh, after some sort of successful years at the Blue Horizon, you become the director of boxing at the Spectrum. You know, it's a, a big jump up, 18,000-seat arena, home to the Flyers, the 76ers, and concerts. You make the Spectrum one of the prime boxing venues, especially for middleweight fights. You say in the book that in the 70s, the best middleweights wanted to fight at the Spectrum. What made Philadelphia and the Spectrum so attractive for that particular weight class? Well, first of all, I moved from the Blue Horizon to the arena in West Philly for a brief period of time. That's out 7,000. But um, the Spectrum was busy with the Flyers, the Sixers, the concerts, Disney on Ice, the circus. But Monday nights were, were, were void. So Lou Scheinfeld, who was president, wanted to fill up Monday nights because it cost them money just in taxes to have the building. Uh, and if there's nothing in it, it's a losing proposition. So for one year, we tried Monday night fights, even though I told them in the fall it would be a mistake because you can't beat Monday night football. But we had four, we had a bunch of good middleweights ourselves Benny Briscoe, Cyclone Hart, Willie the Worm Monroe, Bobby Boogaloo Watts, Stanley Kitten Hayward. So we, and they were all exciting fighters. And we, Briscoe had already been developed at Hayward by the time I came along, but I, I've developed Watts Hart and Monroe, and they were beating everybody that we were bringing in to fight them. Good fighters, and uh, we Philly was a Philly was always a big, attractive boxing city for black fighters. I think Philly and Detroit, and maybe St. Louis in the older days, but. Philly and Detroit, where we're black fighters, um, drew the biggest crowds. And Dynamite Douglas became from Ohio. Buster's father became a fixture here. Emil Griffith fought here. I mean, they all came here because this is where middleweights could make the most money. This is where Hagler made his bones in Philly. You could never do that today. A, a, a top undefeated fighter like Hagler like Hagler, not Hagler, would never go into a place like Philly today because today it's all about business. It's not about finding out how good you are. And Hagler wanted to find out how good he was. And I wish I had realized the mental aspect of boxing at the time. But I was having such a good time watching the fights I made that, you know, I didn't look at the uh, long-term future. 
There's so many fighters mentioned in this book, and you just mentioned one which kind of um, stood out to me, and it's Benny Briscoe. He's one of the most feared middleweights of his era. He was on the first card you promoted. You brought his contract. You were friends for decades. In 2003, he was named Ring's uh, list of 100 greatest punches of all time. His final record, 66-24-5 with 53 knockouts uh, and one no contest. It's also interesting to note in a week where Cletus Selden, the Hebrew hammer fighter, here at the Paramount, that he and Briscoe have something in common as they both wore the Star of David on their boxing shorts. Can you tell our audience a little bit about Briscoe and also why he wore the Star of David? Well, he wore the Star of David first when Jimmy Islin, who was a part owner, of the New- his father was a part owner of the New York Jets, Phil Islin, uh, became his manager. Um, he did that in tribute to Islin. And then when my brother-in-law bought his contract from Islin, I guess that's how you print it, Islin, Islin, uh, in 1970, he kept the Jewish star on his uh, trunks. And he became a big hit in Paris because when we fought there, because, you know, the Jewish people were having a lot of problems in Paris, even back then. And he was their hero. But Briscoe, Briscoe never had gotten his just due until we came along. He was always playing second or third fiddle to Gypsy Joe Harris or Kitten Hayward. Not Joe Frazier so much, because Frazier really didn't fight in Philly that much, especially after he won the title. But And then by the time Gypsy Joe lost his license, because he was, they suddenly discovered he was blind in one eye and Kitten was off in Europe, and I was featuring Briscoe on, on all my cards, he became the attraction. And when we bought his contract, I think he scored 11 straight knockouts. And, um, you know, Philly is a town for the underdog. And Briscoe was the underdog. And the fact that he never won the world title, and I'm talking about an era when world titles actually meant something, not this garbage today where everybody on every street corner has a title. It it actually added to his mystique, I think, the fact that he could never quite get there. And that made him even more beloved. Um, and I was, I was, let's see, when we took over, I was 23. I mean, think about that. When I think about that, I was 23 years old in charge of the career of a guy who became a legend. And... We we had a terrific relationship. Um, we were as close, I think, as a promoter and fighter could ever be, especially when you're dealing with finances. But he had absolute trust in us, absolute trust. I mean, are there bumps along the way? Yeah, there's always bumps, but just like there's bumps between, you know, a husband and a wife. But it was a great relationship, and it'll, it could never be duplicated, never, with another fighter, never. You know, you mentioned Marvin Hagler, and we've had we had Hagler on our show a couple of times, I think, Mark. Uh, he fought on your cards five times and initially didn't do well fighting in Philly. But you say you made one of your biggest career mistakes when you declined the chance to purchase 10 percent of Marvelous Marvin? Well, I didn't have to purchase it. They were going to give it to me. <laughs> so. Um, remember, let's see, 1976, I was 29 years old. I should have known better. Um, but he had lost a terrible decision to Boogaloo Watts his first time in January. I mean, really, it was embarrassing. Um, and the second time against Willie Monroe, 
which unfortunately there's no film because it was in a snowstorm. So our film crew couldn't get there. So I love reading these people that say he got robbed against Monroe the second, uh, when they fought the first time. Listen, Monroe had one of those career nights. I hate to use this, this uh, cliche, every dog has his day because Monroe was not a dog. But he beat Hagler from here to Brockton. It was a great fight, seven rounds to three. But every round was a war. And when the fight was over in the Petronelli's corner, man, I made that famous statement, if you can't beat the guys from Philly, what can I do for you? But, and I used to say, why do you want to keep coming back? And I didn't realize at the time that the, the, mental, the mental makeup of an athlete, especially a fighter in a one-on-one situation, is so important especially when the skills are basically on the same level. And, it's, and, then I, and then I think, well, why would Monroe want to go back to Boston for the rematch? And it's another thing that would never happen today. Boxing was a different world back then. You don't have guys, you don't have many guys like Hagler around today who doesn't, who, who would never, I don't want to fight him in his hometown. He's left hand, you know, all that, all these garbage excuses fighters come up with today. It's not enough money. Hagler fought for me three times for $2,000 a piece. But by the time he fought Briscoe in 78, the 17,500 he got in 1978, he, from what Bob Aram later told me, he put in a bank account and never touched until later in life. Um, it had to be double three times the biggest purse he'd ever gotten at that time. But Hagler was a wonderful guy. He, you know, I'd see him every year at Canastote at the Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, when he signed that picture to me that's in the book and he wrote on it, we had fun. We did. We had fun. <laughs> So June 13th, 2004, you're inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. You just mentioned that. What do you remember about that day and why isn't it part of the book? It doesn't appear in $30 and a cut eye. Um, well, I mentioned in the book early that I got into the Hall of Fame, but um, I don't know. I um I'm not one of those guys, like my wife gets on my back. She says, you know, you have no ego. She says, that's what I love. That's what I love about you, but it's not good in business to have no ego. I don't know. I mean, it, listen, it, it was a highlight. It was one of the highlights of, of my career. I, uh, I wish my, it's a shame my parents were long gone. Um, I... I'm glad that I got into the Hall of Fame. That was the 15th year at the Hall of Fame, and it hadn't become cheapened yet. Now, I got a lot of problems with the Hall of Fame today, what's going on, but I don't want to get into that. Um, they can never take that away from me. Why didn't I put it in the book? I don't know. I, I, have, I have a problem <laughs> writing glowing things about myself. I mean, that, I guess that's the best I can tell you. Um, there were, there were so many other, too many other stories to tell. So we don't have much more time left, but I'm going to read through a passage from the epilogue of the book. You say, quote, it's been difficult for me to adjust to 21st century boxing. 
It's not only the multiple weight classes, dot, dot, dot. Do we really need YouTube stars or 50-year-old ex-pros and exhibitions to draw crowds? They get more satisfaction working with lunch pail fighters trying to turn their careers around than with prima donnas scoffing at seven-figure paydays. Assume somebody turned to you tomorrow and said, we're making you the king commissioner of all boxing. What would you do? And how can you attract the younger audience who seem more interested in mixed martial arts? Well, to me, boxing's biggest problem is the multiple champions. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. I think the networks have the power because they have the money. And if they said, listen, either get together or get lost, you know, combine the IBF, you, you know, WBA, WBC and WBO into one organization. I don't think that's ever going to happen any more than we're ever going to happen in the United States of Europe. There's, you know... Uh, right off the top of that, you got you can't start main events at eleven thirty or midnight. I mean, that's insane. What sporting event do you know that starts that late? The other thing is pay per view. Come on, do you pay for the World Series, the NBA Finals, the Stanley Cup, the Super Bowl? Why are we paying for fights? It's good for the promoter. I understand that. It's good for the promoter financially, but it's terrible for the long term future of the sport. I mean, Hagler and Briscoe, you know, I'm jumping around. Hagler and Briscoe fought a 10-round fight. There was no NABF, USBA, IBC. There was no title. It was a 10-round fight. We did 15,000 people for a 10-round fight. People forget that. I'm dealing with a whole generation of fight fans who think that multiple titles is the way it is. Can you imagine that there were no NBA playoffs this year? Let's just say the regular season ended and there were no playoffs. That means the Golden State Warriors would say, we're the champ. You know, the Celtics would say, we're the champ. You know, whoever was the, the, the six division winners would all claim to be world champ if there's no playoffs. That's what boxing is. You wouldn't know who the best team was because they don't play each other. Russell, thanks for a great trip down memory lane. How can people stay in touch with you? How can you get a copy of $30 in a cut eye? Well, the easiest way for them to get it is to go on Amazon. You know, I mean, they they can go to peltsboxing.com if they want it signed, but uh, otherwise they can buy it at Amazon. Or they can show up in Canastota this Saturday at the uh, at Hall of Fame weekend. I'll be selling them at the memorabilia show. Awesome. Jay Russell Peltz, legendary boxing promoter. 